On a hot summer day in 1566, a Spanish ship appeared off the shores of Calusa Bay. It had been 45 years since Juan Ponce de Leon's second attempt to take control of the area had led to his abrupt demise. And during all those years, Spain had not officially visited South Florida again. But now, Pedro Menéndez de Aviles, the Adelantado of Florida, climbed into his ship's dinghy with his men and prepared to go ashore. Although he carried official papers of the Spanish crown, he was not just there on government business. He was there to find his son. As they rowed to shore, a canoe put out from the sandy banks and approached them. In it was a strange man, who Menendez described as, quote, naked and painted, and took for a Calusa native. But as the man drew nearer, a flood of raw emotions must have overtaken Menendez, for it was clear that all was not what it seemed. The man who approached them bore a crucifix. Welcome to the story of Miami. Episode 4, The Harsh Frontier. A lot had changed since De Leon's time. These weren't the same Calusa, and this wasn't the same Florida. The alien invasion that began with Columbus had started as a trickle and grew into a steady stream, and by now the Spanish were pouring into the New World. What had been an apprehensive series of initial contacts between natives and the Spanish had become commonplace, and a familiar, if not exactly easy, coexistence had begun to form as Spanish voyagers sailing far and wide throughout the Americas explored the coast and mounted expeditions on foot deep into the interior. A handful of expeditions are known to have made their way through Florida during these intervening years. The voyage of Panfilo de Narvaez, for instance, set sail from Spain in 1527 with five ships and 600 men to establish settlements on the Gulf Coast of Mexico. When the expedition reached the Gulf, they were unable to overcome the unexpected strength of the Gulf Stream current. And after weeks of attempting to reach Mexico, they were forced to land near Tampa Bay. From there, Narvaez led a party overland in search of gold and riches, but they found only misery. The party that was left behind with the ships sailed away, leaving the expedition stranded in a hot, humid, alien landscape. They meandered for months, encountering nothing but swamps, mosquitoes, and hostile natives who attacked them constantly, in retaliation, no doubt, for the frequent atrocities the Spanish had a habit of committing. The expedition suffered from disease, starvation, and mutiny, and they didn't find an ounce of gold. Utterly decimated by their encounter with Florida, the surviving members constructed a handful of rafts with a plan to sail them to Mexico, Only about 240 of the original force of 600 made it out of Florida alive. And as for Narvaez, 
the raft that carried this unlucky conquistador was swept away by a storm, and he was never seen again. Just four of these men would survive an almost eight-year journey through Texas and the American Southwest before reaching Spanish territory in Mexico. Perhaps a better-known expedition was that of Hernando de Soto, who in May of 1539 landed somewhere south of Tampa Bay with nine ships carrying 620 men, including priests, engineers, farmers, craftsmen, and over 200 horses. This was the most ambitious expedition yet to make landfall in Florida, and this time de Soto was able to make a much better go of it. He was helped greatly by his encounter with Juan Ortiz, a lost member of the Narvaez expedition who had been captured by natives and had since learned much of their language and customs. And with the aid of their newfound guide and interpreter, the expedition made its way north out of the intolerably harsh landscapes of the Florida Peninsula and into the American Southeast. De Soto's expedition would go on to become one of the most extensive of all the Spanish explorations, being the first to chart much of the modern United States. He and his men traveled as far north as the Carolinas and Tennessee and west across Alabama and Mississippi, becoming the first recorded Europeans to cross the Great Mississippi River. De Soto himself eventually succumbed to fever on the western banks of the Mississippi, but nearly half of his expedition eventually made it back to Spanish territory in Mexico with tales of their three-year-long journey. Between De Leon's voyages and those of Narvaez and de Soto, not to mention countless of unofficial and unrecorded trips to the territory, over a thousand Spaniards had gotten a taste of what Florida had to offer by the middle of the 16th century. Many men, like de Soto's guide Juan Ortiz, were lost along the way, and most did not have the good fortune to be found again. These early accidental ambassadors helped to forge the seeds of familiarity between the Spanish and the American natives. It was through these long-term castaways that the natives learned a lot about the Spaniards as the Spaniards learned about them. Then a steady, if not often painful, cultural exchange was born. These early explorations of Florida made another thing clear. The place was a hellhole. No doubt the Spanish had taken note of the occasional awe-inspiring neon sunset, or the majesty of the flamingo or great heron, or discovered the refreshing joy of a crystal-clear spring hidden in the dense brush. But for expedition after expedition, the big takeaway was the same. Florida was, from top to bottom and from one side to the other, an awful and economically worthless place. The natives were uncooperative, and when it wasn't pouring rain, the hot and humid air was filled with mosquitoes. The soil could support neither tobacco, nor sugar, nor coffee. And, worst of all, the ground contained no gold or silver, only useless limestone, seemingly forever in every direction. But while North America was proving to be a generally displeasing continent, it was the seismic events that the Spanish had brought to the rest of the Americas that ended up propelling Pedro Menéndez de Avilés 
the lovesick father, to the harsh Florida frontier. See, even before the Narvaez and De Soto expeditions, campaigns elsewhere in the New World had torn down the floodgates for the unprecedented and ruthless exploitation of the Americas by the Spanish. When the survivors of those two Florida expeditions walked out of the North American wilderness and encountered the friendly faces of their Spanish countrymen in Mexico, they were entering the land conquered by the legendary conquistador Hernán Cortés. In 1521, only months after Ponce de León had met his maker at the wrong end of a Calusa arrow, Cortés had completed his ruthless and brutal conquest of the great Aztec Empire. An enormously rich and powerful people who were bursting at the seams with gold and silver. And this conquest was followed by Francisco Pizarro's invasion of Peru in 1530, in which he conquered the Incas in a similarly merciless fashion. The infamous mining town of Potosí would soon be established there, home to one of the largest silver deposits on earth. And to add to the enormous quantity of mineral wealth the Spanish began to extract from the Americas, valuable cash crops could be grown in abundance throughout vast swaths of Central and South America. In only half a century, the New World had gone from an uncharted mystery to an absolute gravy train. And Spain was well on its way to becoming the wealthiest empire in the entire world. But what use was all this wealth to the Spanish if it just stayed in the Americas? No, 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 that wouldn't do. The treasure belonged to Spain, and it belonged in Spain, where it could be properly put to use for whatever pursuits the Spanish crown desired. So the treasure of the Americas was piled on the ships and hauled across the Atlantic Ocean. Now, the Caribbean islands in the middle of the Americas and home to the oldest and most established Spanish settlements, had become the nexus of Spanish shipping. The young town of Havana on Cuba's northern coast rapidly emerged as the most important hub for those ships leaving to Spain. From Havana, a ship needed to put out only a mile or so to sea in order to be picked up by the Gulf Stream as it rushed through the Strait of Florida. It would then be swept by the current up the east coast of Florida inside of Miami's shores before finally catching the trade winds near the North Florida coast and disappearing across the sea. But the moment the Spanish treasure shipments began, they were beset by an obvious problem. In the lawless waters of the New World's early days, a ship full of gold was an irresistible target for many an unscrupulous sailor. Piracy on the high seas became an instant epidemic, forcing Spain to devise a stronger system to protect their precious treasure. And the man tasked with solving the problem was none other than Pedro Menéndez de Aviles. At that time, Menéndez was already a seasoned naval officer. He was captain general of the fleet of the West Indies, putting him in charge of the Spanish Navy throughout the Caribbean. It was, in fact, Menendez who designed the original plans to arm and fortify the major port cities of the Caribbean, especially Havana, and it was Menendez who devised the great Spanish treasure fleet system. Leveraging strength in numbers, the treasure ships would make the twice-yearly journey across the sea together, huddled in one big group. 
and protected by the bristling guns of the famous Spanish Galleon, the workhorse of the Spanish Navy, whose iconic profile was also designed by Menendez. And it's quite possible that the Tequesta, standing on the beaches of Key Biscayne during this time, could have witnessed the passing of these treasure fleets off on the distant horizon, sometimes numbering over a hundred ships, carrying the wealth of the Americas away. And to prove his system worked, Menendez himself had led the maiden voyage of the Spanish treasure armada. It was the crowning achievement of his career, but it was also the moment he suffered his terrible loss. Departing from Havana, the ship carrying his son was smashed against the treacherous rocks of the Florida Reef, and Menendez was forced to carry on without him. Despite this personal setback, Menendez's flotilla system was a major success against piracy and earned him huge accolades. Even as he mourned his son's loss and pleaded for the king's permission to return to South Florida to search for his boy, his stature reached exhilarating heights. Nonetheless, he was forbidden from abandoning his obligations, and so he dutifully continued carrying out his admiralty in the Caribbean, waiting for the day that he would be able to return to Florida. As much of a success as Menendez's fleet system was, it still had a notable weak point. See, although the Spanish had firm control of the Caribbean and the coasts of Central and South America, there was this one little stretch of the treasure route that was not secured to the satisfaction of the Spanish. See, as long as Florida remained unconquered by Spain, their fleets could not be assured of their safety as they sailed up the Florida shore, away from the protected waters of the Caribbean. Piracy from the Florida coast does not appear to have been a major issue, but the strategic risk of allowing Florida to remain uncontrolled was nevertheless impossible to ignore. Other European powers had taken a liking to the idea of getting their own piece of the New World pie before Spain scooped up the whole hemisphere. And Portuguese, Dutch, British, and French expeditions had all begun to make an appearance. Things came to a head when a group of French settlers built a fort in North Florida, on the banks of the St. John's River in modern-day Jacksonville. Fort Caroline, as the French settlement was known, represented an unacceptable threat to the Spanish fleet system. The moment news of its establishment reached the Spanish crown, Menendez, the superstar admiral of the Caribbean, was given the job of dealing with the situation. He was named the Adelantado of Florida, giving him sweeping rights to tame it by whatever means necessary. As with all of his previous assignments, Menendez executed his campaign against the French settlers with grim effectiveness. The people of Fort Caroline were massacred and hanged from trees, and the fort was burnt to the ground. A new fort was built in its place named San Mateo, but Menendez established his main stronghold several miles further down the coast, erecting the fort of San Agustin, or St. Augustine as it is now known. Menendez's fort at St. Augustine is well known today as the oldest continuously inhabited European settlement on the U.S. mainland. The short-lived history of French Florida thus came to an end. But Menendez still had his work cut out for him. 
it was clear to the Spanish that the competition was starting to heat up, and tightening their grip on Florida was of critical strategic importance. So after spending some time consolidating control of the area around St. Augustine and San Mateo, Menendez set his sights on the rest of the peninsula. His duties had finally led him to a chance to find his son. He left the garrison in North Florida and set out for the home of South Florida's ruling people in Calusa Bay. When Menendez was greeted by a painted man wearing the cross, we can only guess as to the emotions he must have felt in that moment. He had scarcely even reached the shore in the land that had taken his son, and the first man he encountered was a Christian. Could it be that easy? But his hope quickly faded, because the man that welcomed Menendez was not his son. His name was Hernando de Escalante Fontaneda. He had survived the shipwreck in Florida when he was just 13 years old and spent the next 17 years traveling throughout the peninsula, documenting his adventures as he went along. Fontaneda had visited many native villages and even learned some of the native languages. And just as the castaway Juan Ortiz had helped De Soto, Fontaneda would quickly become a valuable asset to Menendez, serving as a guide and interpreter. Later in life, Fontaneda would return to Spain and write his memoirs, and much of our knowledge of South Florida and the native people of that time is thanks to this accidental anthropologist. In fact, it was Fontaneda who was the first to record the name of the Miami natives of Lake Okeechobee, the tribe for which the Miami River and the city of Miami would eventually be named. He spelled it M-A-Y-A-I-M-I. With the help of Fontaneda, Menendez was able to make the first successful inroads with the Calusa. He was granted an audience with the cacique, the chief of the Calusa, who the Spanish referred to as Chief Galus, that is, until settling on the more comfortable moniker Chief Carlos. Applying a, shall we say, softer touch than Ponce de Leon, Menendez was able to enter the chief's good graces. But when he asked about his son, he received no good news. The Calusa had no knowledge of the boy. So, as always, Menendez tucked his grief away and capably attended to his duties. He succeeded in charming Chief Carlos, who soon offered Menendez his sister's hand in marriage, an offer which Menendez, being no fool when it came to diplomacy, graciously accepted. His new Calusa wife became one of the first South Florida natives to be converted to Catholicism, marking another major notch in Menendez's belt, a fact that I'm sure was a great source of pride to his wife back in Spain. But while things were progressing nicely for Menendez in southwest Florida, the situation in San Mateo and St. Augustine was deteriorating rapidly. The men who had been deposited on the shores of North Florida lived on the edge of a hot and inhospitable wilderness and faced constant food shortages and the threat of ambush by natives. Getting supplies to St. Augustine was a constant struggle. The men's wages went unpaid for months at a time, and disease and starvation were a constant menace. Many of the men had sailed to the New World chasing the promise of gold and easy living. 
but Florida was no Mexico or Peru, and morale among the men rapidly reached the breaking point. In April 1566, a group of men at San Mateo mutinied. They commandeered a ship and made their escape, setting sail south down Florida's east coast with vague plans to make their way to Mexico. And when they reached the shallow waters of Biscayne Bay, they sent a search party ashore to look for water. But winds picked up before the party returned, and the ship was forced to put back out to sea, leaving the search party stranded on the banks of the Miami River in the heart of Tequesta territory. And so, while Menendez was making strides with Chief Carlos and his sister far out on the other side of the Everglades, the San Mateo mutineers became the first long-term Spanish guest of the Tequesta. This turned out to not be such a bad thing. The Tequesta were very hospitable, and it seems that this was thanks, at least in part, to news that had arrived from across the swamp of Menendez's recent marriage into the ruling family. The mutineers' comrades who had sailed away without them were soon captured by Spanish authorities. When news of the mutiny and the men stranded at Biscayne Bay reached Menendez, he dispatched a party to search for them and scout out that intriguing corner of the coast. The mutineers, having been treated so well by the Tequesta and facing certain punishment if they were returned to Havana, refused to leave. Instead, the Tequesta sent a message back to Menendez, an invitation for him to personally visit their settlement. Now, Menendez was too busy to visit right away. After making inroads with the Calusa, he had to scramble to salvage the situation in St. Augustine. But he nevertheless set about advancing the Spanish cause in Tequesta country. He sent Brother Francisco Villarreal of the Jesuit order on a mission to establish a Catholic church and lead the Tequesta to the loving light of God. Villarreal and 30 soldiers joined the mutineers, who, as far as we can tell, were allowed to stay, and they set up a small settlement on the banks of the Miami River, near the Tequesta village. Villarreal was the first Spanish resident to take extensive notes of the area that would one day give rise to the glittering skyscrapers of downtown Miami and Brickell. The Spanish mission in Biscayne Bay was little more than a small wooden outpost tucked into the edge of the hardwood hammock. But Villarreal's efforts were met with initial success. Tequesta helped him raise a cross and build shelters for his men. A few even became willing converts. Menendez himself did eventually pay Villarreal a visit, noting with approval his apparent success and developing a favorable impression of the Tequesta. But tensions were rising beneath the surface, and it was not long before the Spanish began to wear out their welcome. Though they had succeeded in getting along for a time, the cultural divide between the Tequesta and their guest was proving to be more of a gaping chasm. As the oppressive summer months wore on, Villarreal wrote to his superiors about that most hated of South Florida wildlife, the mosquito, and the morale of the Spanish deteriorated. They took to harassing and mocking the Tequesta and their customs, and it soon became apparent that the Kesta weren't really taking the holy salvation of God all that seriously. 
and even those who had converted seemed to only be going through the motion just for kicks. Tensions finally spilled over into violence when a Spanish soldier killed a relative of Chief Tequesta. And in return, the Tequesta killed four of the Spanish. The situation was on the verge of catastrophe when a Spanish ship arrived just in time to whisk the remaining Spanish away. And thus, the success of the Miami mission sputtered to an abrupt and awkward end. This brief and chaotic saga would set the tone for an early history of South Florida that is defined by fits and starts. Although Menendez had succeeded in opening up communications with the Calusa and Tequesta, both tribes continued to be stubbornly independent. The strategic importance of Florida, that of protecting the Spanish treasure routes, was his primary concern. And for the remainder of his career, he focused his efforts on fortifying the northern coast. He never did find his son. And while St. Augustine will go on to have a vibrant history as Florida's most important city for centuries, the Miami area, smack dab in the heart of the New World, now entered another long period of Spanish disinterest. This time, it would last 100 years. But sweeping changes were brewing throughout the Americas as colonizers from not only Spain, but across Europe, continued to pour in. Disease was tearing across the continent, decimating whole populations before they ever laid eyes on a white man. As the European Leviathan continued its march of conquest, the fundamental order of things that had persisted for eons was being slowly and methodically upturned the real cataclysm was yet to come. And when it finally arrived, it would set off shockwaves that would ricochet all the way down to the remotest, most isolated corners of Florida. <laughs> 